0: So, this week, my son, who is three years old, said, you're really strong, dad, aren't you? And I smiled and I said, yes, I'm really strong. And, but the, the fact is, I'm not sure if I'm any stronger than your average bear. Uh, I, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm not really looking for any feats of strength to prove myself, uh, but... I do know that for a young boy who is encountering everything is new in his life, a new big world, it's healthy and important for him to feel safe and protected. It's good for him to think that his daddy is strong. Uh, When we're little, we need to know that good will triumph over evil. And I think that's part of the reason that as small children, particularly, we are drawn uh, to superheroes and figures that seem perfect and indestructible and unbeatable. I know for me as a kid, the first hero I had was Superman. I love Superman because you couldn't beat him. There's nothing you could do to him. You couldn't kill him with bullets. You couldn't beat him up. He was the man of steel. uh, And really, he basically was indestructible. He was good, moral, indestructible, and he had superpowers. No one could beat Superman. As an adult, I have to admit that Superman isn't nearly as inspiring to me as he used to be. The truth is, I can't do what Superman did. His example is unattainable. It's beyond me. I don't have superpowers. And I definitely can be knocked down. I can be beat up. I am very destructible. And his example for me isn't particularly inspiring for my everyday life. And in fact, I was reading an article that uh, said that in our society today, another type of hero uh, actually is way more popular than figures like Superman. So the Superman model of heroism is a perfect, indestructible hero who believes in truth, justice, and the American way. The most popular heroes today look a little different. The article was called The Liberal Style in American Action Movies. It was written by Stephen Lavington. And he pointed out that most heroes being written for the big screen today aren't perfect or hopeful like Superman. According to the article, sort of the pinnacle or the zenith of modern action heroes is a character named Jason Bourne. Do you guys know him? Yeah, oh, big fans here. So Jason Bourne is the star of uh, the Bourne Identity series. Um, and if you know the story, there's not really a spoiler alert here, just, but you have to trust me, and I know that's a dangerous thing because I don't have a good history, but he has lots of problems. He's haunted by the past. He's been sold out by the American way and the American government, and he literally can trust no one, and he has to go it alone using nothing but his own skills and his own abilities to survive. Now both Superman and Jason Bourne, in their own way, work to make the world a better place. One through perfection combined with hope, Superman. The other through imperfection combined with cynical independence, that would be Jason Bourne. While both of these models are just, I mean, they're terrific for movies, I love both Superman movies and Jason Bourne movies. Neither of them are particularly inspiring for me in my everyday life. In fact, they're the opposite, they're discouraging. I'm never going to be perfect with superpowers. It's just never going to happen. And while obviously I am imperfect, I'm not really attracted to a lifestyle of cynicism and loneliness. That doesn't seem very attractive to me either. So today we're going to look at a different approach, another approach to living life that's modeled, taught, and described by Jesus. And it's an approach that acknowledges our imperfection, but with hope. And this example of Jesus is one of the reasons that I love Jesus. This whole series is called Why I Love Jesus. And for me, this is an example of why I love Jesus. This is so hopeful to me and gives me so much encouragement, particularly when I don't feel like things are working out or I'm quite the person that I want to be. So let me show you what I'm talking about. This is Our first reading is from Acts chapter 1, the first nine verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, this book of the Bible is actually a continuation, or volume two, if you will, of the story of Jesus and the early church as written by Luke. And here we see Luke describing Jesus' last face-to-face interaction with his followers. And I want you to notice that Luke says that in his former book, that he wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. I think we can understand from this that although Jesus is about to leave earth and ascend to heaven, that his work on earth isn't finished. It, it's only just begun. And we see in this passage that he is commissioning or sending out his followers to continue his work. But in order to do that, he, inform, he affirms for one last time the approach that his followers will need to take to continue his mission to renew the world and does it in three ways he models it he teaches it and he gives them a lasting image for them to hopefully remember it the model i'd like to talk about first so the way that jesus models this approach to his followers it's really actually you could kind of overlook it if you're not paying attention and when you notice what Uh, Luke says about Jesus in verse 2, he says, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and teach. And then in verse 2 he says, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. And what this shows, if we're paying attention, is that when Jesus did things, he did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. For example, earlier in Luke, before Jesus has preached a single sermon before he's healed anyone, before he's recruited a single follower, as he's baptized, Luke writes this, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And after this experience, Luke continues by saying, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So Jesus begins this public period of ministry, the most famous time of his life, this period he begins by being led by the Holy Spirit. Or other Christian authors of scriptures have made the same point. So Matthew quotes Jesus as saying, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Paul writes in his letter to the church at Philippi in chapter 2, In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is that Jesus lived a life dependent on the Holy Spirit. Now, if you grew up in the church, you're familiar with Christian theology, this probably isn't a big shocker to you. But a lot of times we hear this and we don't understand all the implications or the actual nugget of powerful, life changing hope that this is to every person in this room. What I take this to mean is that although he could have, Jesus never tapped into his divinity to work a miracle. Preach a great sermon, drive out a demon, or resist temptation. I'll just say that again. Jesus never tapped into his divinity to do any of the amazing things that he did. Instead, he relied on the Holy Spirit to do those things through him. He chose to live a dependent life. And this, this, is actually the great hope for us. Let me explain to you why. Now, I was a kid, um, a lot of you probably didn't come from my background. I grew up in a church. My dad was a pastor. I was the kid who knew all the Bible stories and was so bored in Bible school and Sunday school. I was the annoying guy who knew all the answers and the teachers didn't want to call on. I heard a lot about Jesus, way more than, I won't say more than was good for me. That's probably not the right thing to say. But I knew it, and I, was, I, I knew it all. And my whole life, I just pictured, anytime Jesus did something amazing, he just pushed the God button, got divine on us, and healed somebody. Preached a great sermon. Saw what was happening supernaturally, because he could just turn the God switch anytime he wanted to. Which is cool if you're a little kid, right? Just like Superman is cool if you're a little kid, because superpowers are cool. And in some ways, you feel safe knowing that there's this all-powerful God. But As I got older, that's not so encouraging. You know why? I don't have any superpowers. That doesn't help me in my life. If Jesus is my model, and what he's doing is flipping the God switch whenever he needs to do something hard, I can't do that. I've got no God switch to flip. I'm not saying I'm not connected to God or the Holy Spirit can't work through me. That's what the whole sermon is about, really. But it's not hopeful and Jesus' model is not hopeful if he's just tapping into his godness and divinity anytime he does something cool or powerful or un- overcomes something difficult. Because we can't do that. But all the scriptures I just read to you are saying that's not what he did, saying that he left his privilege in heaven and came to earth and experienced life in a fully human way. He did not. Consider equality with God something to be grasped, or sometimes it's translated, to be held onto. Another translation say, but he emptied himself. He left it. It's not that he stopped being everything that he was, but he didn't tap into everything that he was. He lived a completely dependent life, dependent on the Holy Spirit. He couldn't do anything without the Holy Spirit. And that is incredibly hopeful for you and for me because that means that the way Jesus lived is available to us, that we can do that. I'm not saying we're going to do it perfectly like Jesus did, but every opportunity or challenge that comes today or tomorrow or the next day, we have the same opportunity before us that Jesus did. We can follow the lead of the Holy Spirit and be empowered by the Holy Spirit in the same way. That Jesus was you know if you've ever been in a sermon or a Sunday school class or some environment where you've said to yourself well Jesus was God of course he could do that don't ever say it to yourself again it's absolutely not true that is not how he operated that is not how it's described in the Bible again and again and again, led by the Holy Spirit into the (laughs) desert. If I drive out a demon, it's by the Holy Spirit that I do it. That is one of the great hopes of the gospel, is that we can live a life like Jesus, dependent on the Holy Spirit just as he was. We can live the life of Jesus. We can. It's available to us every day. If we will find ways to become dependent on the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus was. So Jesus, even though he was divine, modeled for his followers what it meant to depend on the Holy Spirit for an empowered life. But he did more than that. He also taught it. So he gave his followers instructions. That's a big part of the passage that we first read. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the dates or the times the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now here Jesus is teaching his followers at least three things here that all point back to a similar conclusion. First, he's saying, wait. He said, don't go anywhere without the gift of the Holy Spirit that you'll receive. So don't leave Jerusalem without this gift. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So wait. Second, he says, you aren't going to know all the details. Some things are going to be a mystery to you. He says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. And third, he says, the mission is way above your head. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, oh great, and Samaria, wait, and to the ends of the earth. All of these things point to need. The need, the need of dependence on the Holy Spirit. Don't go without him. You won't know everything that's going to happen So you'll need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the mission, oh, guys, it's way too big for you. It's the whole world. So if Jesus' model was hope to those of us in touch with our lack of perfection, Jesus' teaching is a warning to those that think you can go it alone. The model says you can do it with God. The teaching says you can't do it alone. we'll need dependence on the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did. And I think the teaching here, if the first teaching or the first of the model of Jesus encourages us, if we're discouraged by thinking we will never be Superman, this teaching challenges our Jason born instincts to be cynical and trust only ourselves. His teaching is an invitation to trust. To trust by waiting sometimes when we want to run ahead and it seems like now's the time. To trust by moving ahead when we can't see all of the important details or how things will work out or when things aren't working out. Or to trust by signing up for a mission that is way, way too big for us. To trust that the Holy Spirit can actually lead us, care for us, provide for our needs. And that we can actually in a very practical and literal way, be empowered by the Holy Spirit just like Jesus was. Trust, though, is a tough thing in our society, and really any society. It's faith. So with that in mind, I think Jesus chooses some imagery to remind his followers as they move forward in life to live this way, to remind them of the need for dependence on the Holy Spirit. He gives them a lasting image. He said, for, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus speaks of what this empowered life will look like, he uses the imagery of baptism. And this, I think, will help us, among other things, to understand why the act of baptism is such a big deal. I read a theologian named David Guzik who said this, the idea of being baptized is to be immersed or covered over in something. Even as John baptized people in water, so these disciples would be immersed in the Holy Spirit. And if we think of baptism in these terms, it's much more helpful to think of it as a condition rather than as an experience. Here's what I mean. An experience can be life-changing and empowering in the moment. But it's only empowering in the long term if our condition changes with it. And the question we can ask ourselves is, am I baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit as opposed to have I been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Am I immersed rather than was I? And this is important because Jesus' modeling and teaching in this passage are that we need to be continually immersed and dependent on the Holy Spirit. The better question is, what condition am I in right now, today? Depending on the Holy Spirit is not going to be an occasional or singular or one-time event for Jesus' followers or for us. Early on in the history of the church, a guy named Paul, who was an apostle, big-time leader, planted churches or started congregations all over the world, wrote to one of those churches and said, "Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the grammar here, this could be boring stuff, so hang with me. The grammar indicates that this command to be filled with the Holy Spirit is what you would call, in grammatical terms, a continuing imperative statement. You want to impress your friends, write that down, otherwise ignore it. What that means is that the encouragement here is to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit or to go on being filled with the Spirit. And the implication or what that means to us today is that we never outgrow dependence. It, we never outgrow it. That's what baptism or immersion speaks to us. That's what the picture is. That's why when you're baptized, you actually are baptized. It happens to you. It helps you remember You have a moment that is to symbolize everyday existence, not a moment to be, all right, I can check that off my list. It's a lasting image for us. We never get to the point where we're perfect enough like Superman and have matured enough that we no no longer need the assistance of the leading or the leading of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, it means that we will never get so good in our own abilities like Jason Bourne that we can go it alone. And you might find this very reassuring, or you also, I can see I could find this as off-putting, depending on how you hear it. And I've talked about this sometimes with people, and uh, it, to me, this is like, oh, thank God, right? But to some people I've talked to, uh, they say to me, man, Brad, that this just sounds like this is denying our human dignity, like our value, actually. Like It kind of makes us this dependence. We need dependence thing. We're meager little people. Little beggars. And it really underscores our inability rather than our power. Who wants that? And honestly, I don't want that. And I see where people are coming from. And I do say, yes, this does place us in a position of being dependent in our lives. But... I think it would be short-sighted to see ourselves as just sort of beggars or to view this as limiting or, you know, putting us down. I don't think it's doing that at all. What I see here is that if we embrace our dependence on God, we can be what Miroslav Volf, who's this theologian you don't need to necessarily know, he calls, it, calls us God-empowered creatures, And I think he means here that dependence on God actually frees us to achieve our greatest accomplishments. He wrote, if faith denies anything, it denies that we are tiny, self-obsessed specks of matter who are reaching for the stars but remain hopelessly nailed to the earth, stuck in our own self-absorption. Jesus' message to his followers was not, you guys are terrible. You're nothing, and I I can't believe how weak you are. Rather, his message was you can change the world. He sent his followers into the entire world. That's a message of belief in people, in their potential, a message of value. It's just connected to reality that on our own, we're very limited. And so it says you'll need the Holy Spirit to pull this off, but it's in you. I put it in you, you're made in my image, you're good. You're not miserable, you're not terrible. Actually, I have a lot of faith in you, but you need me, you need my spirit. You're not Superman. And if you start thinking you are, you're gonna do a lot of crazy harmful things in this world. You're also not a Jason Bourne type that can go it alone you end up isolated, beat up, broken down. Or even if you get where you think you want to go, you won't be a very happy person. Instead, he says, you can do and be all these amazing things. You can live a life like I lived. Does that sound attractive to you? Because it's here for you. But it's not in you. It's in you empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see the hope in that. And see, this is hopeful. Jesus, not Superman. Jesus, the human. It's hopeful. And it's not demeaning. Jesus is saying, you need the same thing I needed. And it seems to me that Jesus had this pretty good self-image. He didn't see himself as terrible, miserable, tiny speck, nailed to the earth. So, I want to do two things. What I'm saying is we all need to the presence, connection, the Holy Spirit. I want to do two things to bless us this morning, the simple sort of prayer exercises. You're not going to have to actually do anything. You might want to close your eyes and and just listen and pray along. But I'd like to pray over you two prayers that I found. I think one is for you if you're in touch with not being Superman. It's a blessing right from Scripture. And the other is for you, if you sort of tend to identify with Jason Bourne, uh, a prayerful reminder to speak and pray to your own soul. And it's a famous poem uh, written by Sir Francis Bacon, I think was his name. So wherever you are, let's just, if you would, let's start by closing our eyes. You wanna open your eyes, that's fine, but let's just start in this place. And if you would like to connect to the Holy Spirit in some real way, You don't have to, but I would recommend just as a physical sign of that openness, maybe put your hands up in open position, like palms up, just as a prayer of invitation. And if you're not in any of those places, that's fine. You can just sit, maybe quiet yourself, and maybe your prayer is, all right, if there is a Holy Spirit, I would really like some indication. And if anything in these prayers encourages you, take it in. So have you lost hope? Are you in touch with not being Superman? For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now let's just stay in a quiet place. If that prayer was for you, you can just sit there and let that maybe rest. If you're in the place of more of a Jason born type of experience of life, I'd like to read this as a prayer for you. Disturb us, O Lord, when we are too well-pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we've dreamed too little, when we've arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas, where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love.